everyone. Today uh, on the Cyber Divas podcast, we have Wunpuni Muhammad, Dr. Wunpuni Muhammad uh, of Penn State, who teaches and researches at Penn State, is also involved in various forms of activism from Ghana, and uh, she has been invited to be one of us Cyber Divas. So welcome again to the podcast where everyone gets to be a cyber diva. Uh, hi. Thank you, Thank you so much. <laughs> so, Winpini, you, 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 you've heard at least, I mean, you know what this podcast is about. I've explained it. Uh-huh. So, um, my key qu- questions revolve around the issue of uh, what does it mean to be, in, uh, what does intersectionality mean to you in, through the multiple contexts that you, and subject positions that you inhabit, and in the work that you do, and in, in, in the people that you encounter in your life and in, through your history. Um, and the other thing is the, the uh, digital publics, how they're being shaped through um, increasing um, emergence of political voice from various part of the world in uh, what are coming to be known as hashtag publics um, and how that serves as a space of provocation and contestation of existing theory building around whether it's feminist publics or other kinds of more you know uh, dominant publics um, so I just want to hear you talk about these issues yeah, um, I think that uh, Kimberly Crenshaw gave us a lot to think about uh, with regards to um, the framework of intersectionality because um, I and many other feminists, uh, transnational feminists uh, in the global south have come to see it or, or find it very useful in the work that we do both in the academy and in our practices as um, activists. And um, it's very useful in the sense that it's sort of a framework that you can take and uh, used to understand, you know, the multiple levels of, you know, oppression and privileges that are existing in your sociocultural context. And um, as you were talking earlier, for example, when you take it to India, you can use it to understand the caste system. You can use it to understand, you know, um, class uh, in, in, in that country. And in Ghana, um, what I have come to learn is that you can use it to understand class, you can use it to understand gender. Um, and one of the topics that we are not seeing a lot of conversation being had about, especially in, in, in various spaces, is the issue of ethnicity. And it's not just limited to the Ghanaian context, but to other um, African contexts. And um, it's really interesting how um, I found the, the, that framework useful for sort of articulating my subject position and articulating my um, positionalities and the ways in which I move through um, the various systems that I find myself in. So, uh, for example, um, just to talk a little bit about how it, it manifests in a specific sociocultural context. Um, I, I am a Muslim woman. I am um, from the north of Ghana, which has historically been marginalized in Ghana, you know, um, economically, developmentally, educationally, and it, it, has, it wasn't marginalized in recent times. It's always been like that, even during colonial times. So you see the remnants of the effects of um, colonialism in, in, in Ghana um, happening in ways where you see certain ethnic groups are um, historically marginalized in public, in, in conversations in the public sphere, in uh, topics about development, and in the ways in which women's lives are affected. Um, and so uh, when I, you know, taught about it, I've always seen that uh, living in Ghana and 
outside Ghana, as a Muslim woman who's a Ghana from northern Ghana, has really been an ex interesting experience. Um, so some of the things that you see are the ways in which um, so people from various ethnicities in, in Ghana are frozen into these groups. Um, so in you know all, all the ethnicities um, have various stereotypes associated with the people who are coming from those ethnic groups. And but you see that some you know also come with privileges and they also change when you move geographically throughout the country. So if you are in your um, part of the country where you're um, you're the dominant ethnic group, you you have privilege, right? So you're not going to be seeing it. And that was my experience, you know, living in Tamale where I was born and grew up. And um, I, I, I didn't see the ways in which my ethnicity was sort of like a stumbling block to me. You know, the ways in which I, I had a lot of privilege because we're the dominant ethnic group in the northern region. And when I went to um, the University of Ghana for undergrad, I began to see the ways in which um, not just my ethnic group, but many ethnicities in the northern part of Ghana were sort of framed not just in public discourses but also in the ways in which um, interpersonal interactions sort of um, uh, unfolded and then you would also see that in the ways in which the news was framed about these parts of the country, the ways in which um, individuals from these parts of the country were viewed by um, the rest of the country and it was just, it was really interesting and when I came here to the US I, I thought I had left that behind but when I moved through spaces that are Ghanaian, I still experience those. So it's really interesting. And when you talk about it in Ghana, people are like, but you live in the US, how is that even possible? Um, and also, um, for example, my Muslim identity in, in, in the part of Ghana, which is usually um, the, it's the dominant um, religion in the north of Ghana and when I was there I didn't really see uh, I had privilege because you know I was part of the dominant group and then when I went to the south where Christianity is dominant I began to see the ways in which Islamophobia sort of um, unfolded in this context now and it was sort of a different type of Islamophobia happening um, than what we have here in the US so it's just really interesting to see the ways in which moving through borders moving through geographies and moving through spaces kind of um, sort of call attention to the ways in which your your privilege or your points of you know oppression um, come to the fore or the ways in which they manifest when, when you find yourself in these contexts and I think that one of the things in African feminisms that we really um, need to do I mean there's been a lot of work around women um, in various African contexts where there has been um, research and, and, and projects that have focused on empowering women, some of which have taken a neoliberalist turn, um, others have also been quite fruitful in, in, in you know, giving, improving the lives of women, usually um, rural women, and uh, these projects are usually run by upper middle uh, middle class women who, who do this type of work, um, but I think that there is so much work to be done, uh, so many conversations to be had in, in Africa and in Ghana about the ways in which um, certain um, conversations are erased from feminist discussions, right? So, for example, how are we talking about sexuality? How are we including LGBT people in our conversations about feminism? How are we talking about class? And when we talk about class, it's not just, um, you know, but also... Sorry. That's Can you okay. repeat that, please? Sorry, I dropped Yeah, something. so when we also have to look at the ways in which class um, shapes people's lived experiences. So when we talk about class, not just working class women, but also working class women, men, you know, people of varying genders, how does class shape their lived reality and how do we include them in our um, feminisms? And one of the other things that we see people trying to push out of these conversations is the issue of ethnicity. How does your ethnic privilege place you above somebody else? You know, how can we make sure that people who are 
ethnically marginalized are included in conversations? How do you make them feel comfortable enough to share their their lived experiences? Um, and um, I think that these are some of the conversations that we've not seen a lot uh, around, um, not just with regards to research, but also um, conversations in the national um, public sphere. And the reason why we haven't seen that is because a lot of the times we see that in our movements, we are trying to make the work that we are doing palatable to stakeholders, to the social actors who have the power in society. So you're trying to get the government interested in your work. So you'd much rather just talk about women and their oppression, which is important, rather than include the issues of, you know, LGBT Ghanaians. Um, talk about, um, you know, ethnicity, which is also has been a very contentious um, issue, not just in Ghana, but, you know, across the continent. Uh, and I think that we need to find ways to have these conversations in a fruitful way, and, and we need to find ways to, to make sure that the work that we are doing is inclusive of all these people who are marginalized in various ways, not just focusing on um, our own issues. And one of the things that I learned from observing um, activism in online spaces has been that a lot of the time people are comfortable talking about their oppressions, which is amazing, but it's also important to um, amplify other issues that are happening that don't directly affect you. Because sometimes, for example, with the LGBT issue, there are a lot of people who cannot come out and say they're gay because their lives can be threatened. But if you have the privilege where you can talk about it without repercussions, without having violence inflicted on you, I think it's your responsibility to do that sort of work. Um, I think that activism shouldn't be just about the individual. It's a collective effort. It's um, collective work that we're all doing. And I, I think and I'm there's... going to pause there because that you've made a lot of important points so far. So I have questions about details about what ethnicity, what you mean by ethnicity in the Ghanaian context. I love that um, um, you're being specific about the Ghanaian context because everybody, tend, people tend to go Africa. And then the first thing they do is think about the issue of clitoridectomy. Um, and uh, they confuse the whole issue of religion. Um, yes. And I'm glad you've talked about uh, these issues. Um, and um, so we'll get back to that. But I think right now, the immediate question that comes to mind, a lot of questions were coming when I was listening to you. And we can continue, right? We, we have just started. This is just the beginning. Um, so even if we don't get to it in this podcast, we'll get to it eventually. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yes, so long conversations, one Um the, But one thing I wanted to ask in regard to that important point you made about the individualist uh, um, perception of what political subjectivity is versus uh, the need to kind of uh, amplify voices that by without positioning a body uh, that can be targeted, right? We're talking about how do we raise the issue and amplify an issue, a political position, a political um, location, um, and a, a sociocultural location without having to put a physical body out there to be targeted for either sympathy uh, or for charity or for, um, you know, criminalizing. So that's partly what you're talking about is that in hashtag publics, what's often privileged is the individual narrative. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. 
absolutely. Um, so, for example, the ways in which we can talk about these issues without um, putting a physical body that could be targeted would be to address the conversations that are being had. So, um, for example, um, in conversations on, on um, LGBT issues in Ghana, um, you see that institutions are working together to, to entrench homophobia. So, you'll see that, you know, um, the vice chancellor of a university will say that homosexual is a sin. Um, you'll see a lawyer talking about how it's a sin or how, you know, the Ghanaian legal instrument does not fully give um, you know, explanations about where Ghana stands on the issue. Um, you'll see politicians who say that, you know, they have to come up with a law. You see the chief justice of, of the country saying, oh, we need to institute a law um, to, to, to uh, criminalize homo, uh, homosexuality. And it, it's really interesting the way... The, the, the way we can begin to have this conversation is to directly address these things that are being said, because these um, issues that are raised are raised by people who are attached to institutions, and institutions are usually seen as legitimate organizations that people should listen to or look to. And um, I think that one of the ways that we can do that is to begin by examining the ways in which these conversations are framed. And the media also plays a role in framing these conversations, because you're not just reporting a story apolitically. You're, you're framing it in a way to make people think about the issue in a specific um, manner. So um, I think that the first thing that we should talk about should be the ways in which um, text or, or language is used to um, inflict violence on, on you know, psychological violence and also ultimately fuel um, sentiments that could lead to physical violence towards these people who are um, oppressed in all these ways. And I think that a lot of us who live outside of the continent, um, we have a lot of privilege when it comes to having these conversations because we are not going to be socially shunned for that. And even if we are, we can deal with it. And we have these spaces where we can go to and get, um, you know, talk about these issues freely without feeling like we, we don't have a, a, a social network, you know. Um, but there are people in Ghana, if they went and had these conversations or supported these things, that would be social suicide. You know, you could lose their job for talking about these things. Um, you could get into trouble for And the only people that I've seen who have comfortably spoken um, out loud on these issues are people who usually are protected by, say, free, um, you know, press freedom or people who are established, established lawyers, you know, human rights lawyers, right? Um, and so I think that um, the work of transnational feminists who are not living on the continent um, can help or has, you know, helped to some extent. But um, I believe that change always has to come from within, you know, it always has to come from the country because we can talk all we want. If there is no change, people's lives are still at stake. Um, so I would say that it's the first step would be to make sure that there are there are more counter narratives to these harmful narratives that are being pushed out. So um, the more counter narratives we have, the more we move towards a position or a place where people are comfortable enough to have the conversation without feeling like they're going to be um, suppressed. Their 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 speech is going to be suppressed, or they're going to they're going to be social repercussions for the the things that they do. Yeah. So, so far you were talking about a lot of good things, things that we need to do. Um, so I have questions now, the how questions, the implementation, and, you, and I know that you can talk about some of that. But I also, as you were talking about the various strategies and tactics and implementation and the how, 
also want you to address the issue of sometimes how we in spaces of privilege take up uh, the cause of somebody else and it almost becomes um, uh, our thing to do and it becomes like, um, but it actually ends up putting the person in that space vulnerable to a, in a position of further local harassment local even 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 um, to the extent of putting their lives at danger so um, how do you see our responsibility coming from spaces of privilege in raising these issues um, and how do we then uh, kind of check our privilege when our uh, our sense of self-importance, uh, saying that uh, uh, in talking in terms of the causes we are working towards, become more important to us than the than than the fact that sometimes we just need to be silent and help in uh, underground ways, if possible, in different ways. Um, because often, see, also what happens is when you raise an issue, the fallout may not come to you and me, but the fallout oh, yeah. comes to the weakest person in, in, mm -hmm. in the structure in a different way. Mm -hmm. I mean, um, I think that this is something that I have practiced with um, people in my um, digital activist community where um, when I've had pushback or people have, uh, when, I've had, when I have been trolled for, say, my ethnicity or my class, my friends, what they do is, you know, they, they'll talk to me and they're like, okay, I'm going to fight. And, I'm, and then they're like, is that okay? Is that fine by you? And, I, and then I'll say yes, or I'll be like, I don't feel like I'm, I'm emotionally in a space where I want to do that today. And then they understand. So I think the important thing um, to think about when we do this, this kind of work is to um, think of the people involved as humans first, you know? Um, so you want to communicate with them and, you know, tell them, okay, this is what I think I'm going to do, instead of just going out and fighting for them. Um, it's important to speak to them because, and then tell them the implications that may, you know, come, you know, follow when you go out and, and do all, do that type of work. Um, so, I, for example, I did work with um, a woman who, um, who just published on Ada, and she, I, we would check in with her, you know, what the things that we would do with, like, you go and message her on Facebook and be like, okay, I'm going to do this, or this is what I'm going to say, uh, what do you think about that? And if I say it, maybe this is what is going to happen. And if she said, I'm ready for whatever's going to happen, then because it's important to not de-agentize the people that we are working with, you know, it's important to acknowledge their agency and, and their ability to make decisions for themselves, even though you are helping, you know, amplify a particular um, issue. But can I pause on that? Uh, mm -hmm. but, uh, that goes back to the individual framework, and I know that that's important. But the other thing is, also, do we have, uh, if they fall, do we have some, some, some safety net, right? Because when, when I make decisions, and it seems to be my decisions, sometimes I do fall, and I didn't know I was going to fall. And if you don't have a support structure for that, you can't deal with it. So, that's true. So, you, you know, and that's part of it, right? You, the, it might be the politically correct thing to do, to ask the person and then go ahead and say, oh, they said yes. But they may not be aware of uh, all the, uh, neither would you, all the repercussions. And what does it mean when somebody gets kind of put in a position where they become... Uh, the person who, you know, and so I'm sure you've dealt with those issues, so I just want to, yeah. No, yeah, I mean, 
mean, for example, with with Sadia, um, she, I, when that issue happened, I just went and I, I didn't even say I'm gonna fight. I just went and I was like, I'm really, really sorry that you have to go through that. I'm really like, and I, I just was being supportive. And then she said, Yeah, thank you, but I want to fight this. And then we started all of that. And then she said, You know, I don't care what happens, but I really want to fight. And th- that's a very um, different case, and it's very rare to find that people. And I was actually surprised that she wanted because wanted to do that because there's always so much trolling that comes afterwards that you have to deal with um and one of the things that we usually do in 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 these things is that we don't most of the time the 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 most important thing is we don't the the Mm -hmm. case that you mentioned that is publicly available on in a publication to look at right in the ada and we'll put the link in so continue okay okay great um so i mean in these other situations where um we, we've tried to have conversations about people being, um, making sure that people are not targeted. Um, one of the things that we do is that usually we're not going to share personal information about something that happens. So most of the time people will, you know, go back to like pervading conversations about an issue. So if someone, you know, a gay person was targeted in say Nima in Accra, um, you don't say, you know, this person was attacked, was targeted in Nima in Accra. You know, you go and say, you know, we've been talking about how the ways in which we entrench homophobia leads to, you know, people um, inflicting violence on um, gay people in Ghana. So you, 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 it is, sometimes it might not be very helpful, but it, you're still making a conversation in general terms where you're not directly identifying the people involved. And you also have to, or you also want to build communities where you go back in and check in with them. Are you okay? Like, how are you feeling? And just let them know that you're not going to share personal information about them. And why? the things that uh, very recently a um a journalist in ghana um brought together um you know lgbt identifying people and then she basically paraded them as um pariahs of society and the result of unemployment in society so she basically said that if you are unemployed you 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 eventually become like these people and what she did was she made a video having these conversations with them and their faces were shown on these videos and what we we did was we called her out i mean we didn't even know these people we didn't know their they didn't know like their personal information but um you know the, the feminist movement in ghana and i think across the continent people you know added their voice to the conversation and they were like you can't do this you're not first of all you have to protect the identity of your subjects if you're going to have a conversation second of all it is very very inaccurate to, to try and draw a correlation between someone's sexuality and their um, employment status she basically said that because they didn't have jobs that's why they became gay which was just ridiculous and so what we did was we came out and then we condemned it we said so many things um, we called her out and sometimes you call people out and it's not that they're changing they they will probably withdraw their statement they will apologize you know that it's not heartfelt but you you're sending a message that if anyone does that in the future there's some they're going to be repercussions and when you call them out publicly like that in, on digital platforms it's interesting the way they respond because they know that the international it's sad that this has to be what it has to be they know that the international community is watching and so they you know backtrack and they apologize but you know that they haven't changed and they probably still go and do it if they're not going to get caught but it sends a message that you can't do this you can't put people out there and make them targets of violence you know as a journalist who's supposed to know better about protecting marginalized people um and that was one of the situations where you know we you would see that the person publicly apologized just 
for you know optics because they didn't want to get into trouble with any opportunities that they might have internationally and it also tells you the ways in which the media as an institution is is you know um complicit in in um, facilitating homophobia um in the public sphere so it's really a very difficult position to find yourself and you don't know what is going to happen when you engage in these conversations and call people out um but you know that you have privilege that will protect you and you also know that you live in a country that has been reported to be um you know really good with press freedom and protecting people's um you know rights free speech and all of that and you know that you're not you're not going to be affected the way that other people are going to be affected it's not professional suicide because you're not attached to institutions that you know promote um hate towards um specific groups so it's it's very complicated and it's really really messy the way these things unfold um and what i have learned is that um most of the time when you see that when you're talking publicly about these issues when you're condemning them you you, you the people that you're working to um, the people whose voices you're working to amplify they see that you're doing the work they may even message you privately and be like i see what you're doing thank you so much we really needed someone to say that because you know i can't go out and say it because people may identify me or i don't you know may out me you know um and it's really important to um learn the context that you're looking at it's important to understand that there are actual lives at stake and it's also important to understand that you know people may get physically hurt if you make a mistake and and one of the things that i think it's important for us to know is that it's okay to not speak on an issue if you don't have the range to talk about it um because sometimes you're trying to help and you end up messing things up um, so most of the time when i go online and i see that a conversation is being had that i don't have the range to engage in i ask the people um privately they tell me what's going on and I, if i still feel i can't have a you know a positive impact or i can have i can engage fruitfully with it i just you know sit back and watch them do their work so because if, if you don't know what you're doing you're just going to cause more um havoc than you should be doing absolutely very important points and i'm sure as people listen to this podcast and as i unpack everything you said we'll have more conversations to have i think the important points that you've made are we need to be really careful about how we we work as um saviors we're not saviors we are we work with the communities yes. uh, but we also have to check our privilege even if if yeah. we're working at the at the activist end you're not somehow morally superior to everybody yeah. else and also there's the intricate kind of interwovenness between uh media representation and activism that uh gets sometimes confused um and so uh, if you the, the journalists that you were speaking of perhaps believed that they were doing a certain kind of activism and that's confusing and we know also that uh some academics may consider the work they do to be activists but to be an activist um is my puts you in vulnerable spaces as well in different ways so um and the responsibility of being an activist is more than doing charity work uh and, uh, and feeling good about it so um let's end this podcast since we want you know the listener span uh there with you giving some last words of advice to but also in terms of uh 
the context, the multiple context that you inhabit, um, uh, suggestions as to how these different ethnicities are coming to the fore in the digital publics, perhaps, and how the multiplicity of what it means to be from Ghana, not just from Africa, which people still think is a continent, is a is a nation. It's a continent, but it's not a nation. Yeah. So yeah. can you kind of uh, say a few uh, last words? Take your time. No oh, yeah. Rush, but yeah. Absolutely, because I'm just going to define um, ethnicity how I, I know it. So, um, you know, to define as ethnicity, um, we have to look at the ways in which the nation state was formed. So, for example, ethnicity, uh, various groups in, in um, Africa were organized around ethnicity um, before the construction of the nation state and the drawing of boundaries. So, in a, in my, in a specific ethnic group usually they um, share various cultural items like dress food or even they share a common ancestor and you know one of the most important um, things they share is the language you know a common language um, to communicate in um, and uh, history you know where they came from and where why why they are where they are today so that's basically what ethnicity looks like um, from my perspective as a Ghanaian who's a Ghana from northern Ghana um, and another issue that I I was thinking about that we have to um, pay attention to is that currently in various feminist movements across the continent, you'll see that the most radical spaces are the queer spaces on the continent. That those are the most radical spaces and they're, they're, those are the spaces where you see people um, embodying radical um, you know ideologies and pushing you know radical ideologies. So um, I think it's really important to acknowledge that feminist movements in in, in Ghana, um, which I've noticed and a lot uh, in, in East Africa, um, they are usually driven by um, queer uh, usually queer women, um, and they're doing amazing work with regards to uh, bringing attention to issues about oppression, not just with, um, you know, sexuality, but also with class and ethnicity and, and you know, all of these other, um, um, uh, you know, ways in which people could be um, oppressed. So I think that um, what I want to say right now is that I'm just very thankful for the, the, the existence of, of um, queer African women and the work that they're doing at the grassroots level, the work that they're doing, you know, in NGO spaces, the work that they're doing in activist spaces to push for systemic change. So you see the work that they're doing is more focused on systems than it is on, you know, interpersonal or individual um, um, things. And th these are the people that are critiquing um, movements or projects that are very focused on neoliberal approaches where they're like, let's empower one woman and she's going to change the entire family rather than looking at how can we change the system so that a woman can, you know, have a better life within a particular um, sociocultural context. So I just want to thank them for the way that they're doing. And I think that we need to protect them. We need to create spaces where they feel safe to do the way that they're doing. We need to push um, for... Um, you know, the, the legalization of their being, you know, we need to push for them to be able to exist freely um, and without fear. And uh, that's just what I want to say um, today. Yeah. Well, Dr. Muhammad, I have, I lied. I lied when I said that will be the last because as I was listening to you, 
whereas other themes came to fore, right? Because what mm -hmm. you're talking about is a shift in how even certain NGOs are functioning. Um, we were they're shifting from a development paradigm that looked at Africa as a space to empower women and almost often gender equated to cis women, yeah. right? You know, straight women. Um, and somehow women was a category that encompassed everything possible African yeah. women. So it wasn't even specific to nation, it wasn't even... So those, those kinds of development uh, projects still exist, and they're still sponsored by large uh, international NGOs where you know, we know this. And um, so, but what you are describing is a more kind of organic process and more very conscious process. So I yeah. do want to alert uh, everyone to that. Uh, in that sense of uh, what what kind of a uh, uh, shift there has been happening. So um, can you say maybe a little more about how these kind of work uh, together or against each other when, um, you know, these queer communities are coming to the fore and leading the movement, so to speak? I mean, I think that the reason, and I, I always... It's, I, at first, I began to um, uh, recognize this in, in my interpersonal relationships with queer women and the ways in which they would understand issues that affected me in, in ways that, for example, straight Ghanaian women with a lot of privilege wouldn't. And I realized that the reason um, why they, they're able to... Um, what do this kind of work is because of their radical positioning. M many of them, uh, you know, position themselves as radical feminists. Um, many of them understand what it means to be oppressed on, you know, multiple levels and what it means to to have your identity, you know, denigrated and erased um, institutionally in these ways. And so I think it's easier for them to empathize with, with people's, um, you know, with other levels or you know, other ways of oppression. And I think that um, it's just really, I am really happy that we have them and I'm really happy that they're able to do the work um, that they're doing, uh, both in online spaces and also in the physical work. Because I've seen a lot of them also acknowledge their privileges as, for example, middle to upper middle class queer women and the, you know how they're um, protected in ways that, for example, working class queer people are not um, protected. And so they're able to, um, understand oppression on various levels because they're they're able to understand um how their various countries um work actively with you know transnational for example transnational churches you know evangelical churches to entrench um homophobia and so this sort of helps them that's what i believe they may say something else to be more to have more empathy um towards um the ways in which people are oppressed and also helps them to understand systemic oppression because they have they experience that and they understand that for example when they navigate certain spaces they have to you know not make their queerness visible in ways that could put them in in, in um difficult situations so i think that's one of the many reasons but i feel like um they would be in a better position to answer this question um just analysis um Petro uh, woman. So uh, I'm just really thankful for them. And, and, for the and we are hoping that maybe you and I could interview more people. And yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, that would be great. I'd love that. Yes. 
Um, one, Bini, one other question that emerged for me, and I think this might be the final, is okay. one thing that we are aware of with the Internet is that however um, there are many locals through which we use these digital tools and people network, what we see in a transnational um, uh, uh, gaze is, we, uh, is that uh, the stage becomes global. And a lot of uh, this this goes back to um, you know um, pre-internet days also when uh, uh, um, in, in the, a lot of this empowerment empowerment work which it's which is problematic to call it empowerment is problematic. Yes, I want absolutely. to acknowledge that because people yeah. had power. People have power. Yeah. It's just where they uh, are allowed to uh, where where we see it or uh, how we work through it. So. So let's kind of uh, talk about, but 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 this was called empowerment work, and a lot of it uh, is is westward looking. It's still global looking. It's still, uh, transnational. Often means westward looking. Whether it's you and I bodies of color in the Western world that um, sort of work to amplify it, or um, uh, or um, you know think about issues around passing the mic. Uh, the mic is still being. Um, the amplification of the mic is still being, um, let's say, facing towards the Western uh, nations and Western yeah. capital, which, which, uh, which is, which, which is transnational, but privileging the West. You, you know what? I mean. Yeah, absolutely. So, how does this play out in relation to local activisms? Um, there was um, a, a number of feminist uh, women uh, in Ghana um, helped to mobilize a, um, a movement that, that sought to address um, um, the, the Ghanaian government's um, use of funds to build a new chamber for the parliament, you know. And it was really interesting. When I look at that movement, I don't think that, you know, they saw, I, I honestly don't believe that, you know, they looked to the West for strategies to do this kind of work because there's a lot of activism, political activism around issues like that on other parts of the continent. You see um, the Free Still and Yanzi um, movement in, in Uganda. You see work in, in um, Burkina Faso and other parts of the continent where people are rising up and protesting you know, their governments. And I honestly don't believe that these women said, let's look to the West and see what we can do because yes, um, yeah. very often you cannot cut and paste um, Western activist strategies in, in, for example, a Ghanaian context. It's probably not going to work because you're looking at a different historical, sociocultural, economic um context you know and it's it's really important to see that you know these women i believe are watching what is happening in other, in other parts of the continent but they're also looking at what is happening within the country because there have been various um you know hashtag um <clears throat> projects or movements that have addressed various various issues within the country and they probably looked at them and they're like okay this is the ways in which we can mobilize and some of these people have collaborated with um, people who have more experience with activists organizing right to do the work that they're doing and i don't think these people just said oh i'm going to look at the west and see what they're doing and maybe we can cut and paste it into this context and it's going to work perfectly because they're we're looking at different issues we are looking at a different um you know um a country which is differently um situated in the geo 
geopolitical context, you know. Um, and I think it's really important to acknowledge the ways in which these people draw on local strategies and also continental strategies to do their um, activist work. So once again, um, in this discussion, also we have seen that um, coming uh, emerging as a social media activist or emerging in, into so into hashtag publics as an activist. Um, it's not about the individual emerging, individual voice emerging so much as a lot of offline strategy that goes into positioning and into being very aware of the multiple audiences. Um, and uh, and it's, it's often those of us who are the off audiences that read them and conflate these issues into flattened Western perspectives or flattened, you know, binaries of different sorts. So if you have any last words, Munpini, we will wrap up this time. <laughs> Okay, I'm just happy. Um, I'm very grateful for this opportunity to talk about these issues happening in Ghana. I just want to thank, um, you know, the the women who um, helped, you know, push the, the drop that chamber movement to keep Ghana's. Um, government accountable in, in spending. I'm also thankful to queer Ghanaian women, queer African women for the work that they're doing in, in pushing us to be more radical and pushing us to check our privileges and, and pushing us to be more accountable to um, our publics. Um, and I'm just thankful for this platform to talk about these issues. Thank you. Yeah, and we need to talk more because as I'm listening to you, there's more questions coming up. And, oh, yeah. you know, how does all this, you know, so I'll leave you with a question and then we can pick up. And, you know, as we talk, you and I, you and I will co-host a few other people. Um, and we plan that out. But one of the things to think about is how does this uh, Africa-centric, Ghana-centric or internal um, community-centric activism through the digital then connect or uh, depart from hashtag black indigenous people of color activism. So I think I will stop with that. Thank you very much. That's what I want to think about. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Yeah, <laughs>